0: The way I like to think about it is that if you're going to take from the open source community, you need to be a responsible citizen and you need to give and participate in the open source community.
1: Welcome to Novell Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Novell user community with what's going on inside and around the Novell universe. I'm your host, Ted Hager.
2: And I'm Aaron Quill.
1: I don't know why I was talking like that for the announcement, but (laughs) hey, um, do you know who it was that was uh, our teaser?
2: Who who that was talking? Yeah, actually, I do know who it is. But the question is, do our listeners know who it is?
1: The reason why that's the question is because we've got a couple Novell Open Audio t-shirts here for the first people to respond, and we'll probably do two or three of these, First people to respond with a voice message to us, and that means you can call, if you're North America, we've got an 800 line that will record your voicemail. Or how would an international dialer do it?
2: They could dial long distance, or they could send us an OG file, they could send us an MP3, they could give us a wave file. We
1: had had uh, somebody complain once that we only had an 800 number for North America. No, you can actually send us voicemails as an email attachment, and we're going to just compare the timestamp on the email to the timestamp on any voicemails, and the first couple people who uh, get get us a voicemail on this, they're going to win a shirt. But you got to leave us, of course, at the end of it so we can cut it off easily, some contact information about how to get a hold of you, and the first couple people that do it from the time that this episode posts are going to win these. Now the question, I guess, next is, what is this episode again?
2: GCC, actually surprisingly cool stuff.
1: Yeah. We talked to Michael Motz and we talked to Richard Gunther about the GNU toolchain and their part of it, which is GCC, or the uh, compiler. Anyway, the, that's what we're going to cover here, but uh, we've got something to hit first. Uh, what? The uh, thing is, we've got the listener survey and one of the pieces of feedback that we had in them. Well, I want to read this to you (laughs) because these are funny. We, We have a question in the survey about whether the two presenter format works better for people or not. And, uh, well, one of the things, and actually we might be violating this right now, one of them was, uh, it's really good except uh, don't overdo it with the inane banter. (laughs) So I guess we haven't crossed that line previously, but now we're about to cross that line because here's a couple other things that we got from it. Uh, Here's one response here. It says, Aaron is probably a nice guy. We haven't had a proper introduction to the Novell Open Audio team, though. And here's another one that's along similar. I love the look on your face right now.
2: Aaron is probably a nice guy.
1: Obviously, you're not being your full personality (laughs) on this show, or they'd know better. Um, But the other one says, honestly, who is Aaron Quill? As I have no idea whom you guys were when I first met you. And to be honest, apart from a slight Venice Beach concrete surfer dude, I still (laughs) don't know who he is. So, uh, let's do a real quick introduction to Aaron Quill on the show, because clearly if there's two people that have said this on here, that means that the demographic of our 20 million listeners, okay, 17 or 18 listeners, they must all be dying to know who this dude with a funny beard is. Uh, What do you want to know? Let's do it like this. I think a lot of people have gotten the idea that we might actually have been around Novell and we might have been around technology for a little while at this point. And that we're not, you know, your average marketing guys stuffed into a podcast room or something like that. Uh, at least I'm hoping that that's the case. But let's talk about when you got into computers. When did you first start messing with machines?
2: So first machine that I drooled over probably would have been a Sinclair. But I couldn't couldn't afford one because I would have been probably nine. And the this Timex
1: have, Sinclair. Yeah,
2: so this would have been like probably 79 or so that we're talking. Okay. First computer I had would have been... A TI99 now that that's pre 4A which means that the TI99 only had 1K of memory I later upgraded it to a slash /4A which had 4K of memory
1: I remember the Trash 80 that they TRS80 that oh, they Oh yeah had. we
2: we had those in in school
1: are these machines you're talking about older than that Yeah, yeah th- okay. this
2: is before this is only a couple years before but yeah we're talking old audio cassette you know the to save and load files, yeah, all that. you listen
1: to it? It sounds like it's a modem. Yeah. In fact, yeah. modems, in, I, I love the, uh, the oh, handset yeah. of the phone where you plug it in.
2: I had an acoustical modem that used to plug into the headset the whole, okay, uh, whole while gig. While we're
1: on memory lane here, the reason why I don't know much about the TRS machines or the Tandy machine series is because this friend had—his dad was an attorney, and they had an Osborne.
2: Oh, and we used to play adventure on the (laughs) Osborne,
1: but this is more about you than it is about me right now. So when did you build your first machine? How did you find the parts? Because I know that's got to be a good story. Yeah. So
2: build my first machine probably would have been um, in high school. So I'm going to unfortunately show my age here, which would have been probably about 84 85. So this is just as you were starting to get access to buy components, you know, to actually be able to buy a motherboard or the components of a motherboard to assemble it. And I actually walked into a computer store and was trying to buy, you know, a motherboard and a separate processor. And the people looked at me pretty strange and they took some notes. And they called me about a week later and asked me if I wanted a job. Told me they couldn't find all the parts that I was looking for, but they figured, you know, from the questions I was asking, they pretty much wanted to hire me to run all the hardware out of there.
1: That aside out front, geek wanted.
2: Yeah, pretty much. Although this was way before being a geek was, uh, you know, the cool and hip thing to be. Right.
1: In other words, you didn't have a girlfriend at the time.
2: Actually, I did, but that's... Liar. <laughs> the funny thing about that time is it really wasn't a big nerd community. It's actually funny, in the early 80s, there was this weird punk rock computer hackers combination thing that was going on.
1: This goes along the lines with the whole zines scene at the time where like people were printing up their own like photocopies and stuff of small magazines. The
2: whole thing is you had a bunch of bright kids that were bored. And luckily, I just got involved in computers at that time. And, you know, actually, it was quite funny. I'll never forget the first time I met some actually fairly legendary hackers, some guys out of the 2300 Club. No, not 2600 Magazine, like some people are probably thinking. I misspoke the 2300 Club, a pretty big hacking group at the time. I remember the first time meeting them, being a little bit nervous because I kind of had a shaved head and a modified mohawk. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to meet all these geeks and nerds. And I go in there and I meet these guys like King Blotto and the matter and Judge Dredd. And it's like Judge Dredd's the first guy I ever saw with both ears pierced. And again, you got to understand, this is like 84. This is
1: You're in the Midwest at this point, uh, right? I'm
2: in the Midwest, and yeah, it was pretty wild. So so I was,
1: much for your California roots, by the way. Uh, yeah,
2: I know. <laughs> But the thing is, I was heavily ingrained in that early 80s hacker-freaker society that was going on. And freaker would be a -A
1: P-H-R-E-A-K. Yeah,
2: Yeah, that's uh, uh, messing with the phone system.
1: You've cleaned up your act since then? Oh, yes. We have reputable people working here at Novell.
2: Uh, Yeah, you only need to be chased by the FBI once to straighten out your act. But that's a whole other story that I'm not going to get into. Yeah. So I spent a fair amount of the early to mid-80s uh, playing with heavy uh, computer systems, doing stuff like the uh, memory upgrades to computers. But I mean, when memory upgrades included, you know, clipping... Soldering, right? Well, not, not just soldering. We're talking, you know, to take a machine from 512 to 640K, which was a big deal back then. A lot of times they didn't have enough uh, space, you know, enough actual, you know, RAM chip sockets for that. So you actually had to do things like take out the processor, bend a leg of the processor up, solder a wire onto that, and then you actually piggybacked uh, additional memory chips on top of the existing memory chips. So real, real frightening, scary stuff.
1: Stuff that people don't want to get into most of the time. Exactly. So what got you into Novell? And I don't mean employment-wise, I mean just like into the software network. Well,
2: actually what happened, this would have been late 80s. I was working for a different computer company. And we had just sold a huge network. Actually, this was the first network that was going into the limited, like the clothing store. And we had one guy who did computer networks, and he was of Malaysian descent, uh, went over to Malaysia to see his parents about three weeks before the install was supposed to happen, and the U.S. government wouldn't let him back in because his visa was about ready to expire. So we were kind of in a tough spot, and they just grabbed me, just this kid they had working there, and said, can you help us out? And so I sat down, read all the manuals, and put in, you know, we're talking, this is 2.0A doing this absolutely unbelievable cutting-edge stuff called disc mirroring. Raid 1. Yeah. <laughs> Right on. So, well, yeah, I've been doing this stuff since you know I I used to do OS gens and shell gen and old SNA gateways, all that stuff.
1: Oh, you did SNA stuff?
2: Oh yeah.
1: Holy smokes, man! Because I I I only dealt with NetWare for SAA um, a while back and. All of that whole sub-network architecture, I think oh, it was, wasn't well, it? Well, SNA. we're even
2: talking before NetWare for SA. I know. See, that's know. the easy and stuff. That
1: stuff, I thought, was ugly, and everybody said it was totally easy compared oh, to the stuff that you worked on. Yeah,
2: that stuff was all built on the NetWare 3D6 stuff. Yeah, oh, right. now the stuff that I'm talking about is built on the old 2X kernel you had to do in, uh, what was it, uh GW config and just go through this painful configuration process
1: man there goes a bunch of our linux audience right now huh yeah exactly <laughs> so i've taken us off on this like really far tangent you end up in novell how's this happen
2: i was working for a very large uh platinum reseller out of uh columbus ohio uh and got uh, <laughs> they actually asked me in the interview if i'd ever been to pittsburgh pennsylvania and i said no and they said cool do you want a job there <laughs> <laughs>
1: so so you got stooged
2: yeah pretty much and uh
1: he doesn't know about siberia
2: yeah (laughs) got hired to be a systems engineer uh out of pittsburgh pennsylvania and i was there for about two and a half years before i was moved out to corporate in california which is what i actually consider home to pretty much being evangelist that's
1: where you and i pretty much became friends is when we were both working out of the san jose office and Yep. I think actually the first time we actually hung out together was at the Vans Warped Tour for yeah, any, any I, length it, of time. So Yeah, absolutely. Which is a skater event, so let's get yeah. that side of your life. You've talked about skateboarding or maybe mentioned a little bit how important is it to you?
2: Oh, it's pretty, pretty high up there. That would absolutely be my passion in life is uh, skating. I skate almost every day in the summer, maybe every other day.
1: But you live in Park City where, is skate park good?
2: Uh, skate park is honestly one of the best skate parks I've ever skated. And I mean, I, a lot of my vacations, uh, my kids and I and my wife will go to California and we'll just go hit skate parks uh, for vacation or I've started to take my board internationally. So I've, I've hit a couple different skate parks around the world. And the one in Park City is just absolutely amazing.
1: Cool. And but that means that you're not on the skate park part of the year.
2: Uh, yeah, which means when there's snow, I... Uh, I just want it. to talk about snowboarding. That's all. <laughs> That's the
1: only reason I cue that one up.
2: When it is snowing, I most definitely am out there uh, uh, snowboarding. That would be my second passion, second only to skateboarding.
1: And we might as well also make sure that people understand that uh, Family Guy, Family Guy Skateboarder.
2: Family Guy Skateboarder have two little skate rats, two sons that are... Uh, they're demons out there on skateboards rollerblades
1: snowboards
2: snowboards mountain boards you strap their both their legs to something and uh you know we're out there jumping grinding doing whatever we can
1: and this comes right down to the thing where everybody was saying you know if you let them grow up that way they're going to raise more of them sure enough here it is yeah (laughs) family of anarchists Now it's time to bring it back to what kind of stuff you've done at Novell. And uh I actually know some of this story because you were working as an evangelist out of California. Novell was kind of pulling back into Utah more and more. In fact, I guess the... uh The big building on 2211 North 1st Street or whatever it was got uh, sold off to. We
2: sold it to eBay. How cool is that?
1: (laughs) Not on eBay, to eBay. But yeah, so things were shrinking out of California and retrenching in Utah at the time. And uh, I was living here already as director of product management over eDirectory. One of the guys who worked for me as e Directory product manager got deployed. He call, got called into active duty in the military, and so we needed a product manager, and that's when I called you over to do e Directory. So tell us about what you did with e Directory.
2: Well, I think Ted started the conversation by Have you ever been to Utah? And tried the same uh, stick that they did in Pittsburgh, but it didn't work. Um, yeah. it, actually, Ted did cheat a little bit. Uh, Ted at the time was living in Park City, which is almost directly across the street from the ski resorts. In fact, it really is directly across the streets from the ski resorts. Got me to come out snowboarding a couple times and then asked me if I wanted to move out and take over eDirectory.
1: Hook them with the snowboarding.
2: (laughs) And it worked. Uh, Yeah, and I actually looked forward to it because, you know, I love dealing with directory-based stuff, been doing it for a while, and to uh, have an opportunity to change the product the way that I see fit was a great opportunity. Yeah. So I came on board in the eight, seven, three days... Uh, helped write the PRD or product requirements document, what's actually going to be in the 8.8 product.
1: Specified like a lot of requirements in there, some of which actually made it to the final product. Some of
2: them actually made it, and then uh, went on did some other cool things in the identity group, and then uh, about a year ago was asked if I wanted to come back and do more evangelism type stuff and move out of the product management side, and I jumped at the opportunity.
1: And we should clarify that you weren't working for me anymore at the time. It wasn't you jumped at the opportunity just to get away from me. (laughs)
2: No, no. I I got a chance to get back to evangelism, which is really, you know, where my heart is and what I really love. Talking and not having to actually write anything.
1: Cool, that's a pretty good introduction there. Now, I think we can get to that GCC interview. Cue the music. <laughs> One of the things I face as I go to different conferences all over the place and talk to people about Linux is there are still people that question Novell and question about SUSE? How much we actually contribute back? The question usually goes along the lines of, yeah, we know you employ uh, somebody working on the Samba project, but you guys get direct benefit from that. Does Novell actually do any kind of contribution that's just purely for the benefit of Linux? To answer that question today, we've invited to join us here, Michael Matz and Richard Gunther, to tell us a little bit about what they do within SUSE. And so we're going to start here with some introductions. Let's get Michael to tell us a little bit about uh, what, what you do. Michael,
0: can you give us a quick introduction to you and what your role is? Hi listeners, I'm Michael Matz. My role here is team lead of a part of the SUSE Labs, uh, the 2 team namely, uh, where I'm yeah just managing people. and time allows hacking on GCC.
1: Richard Gunther, you're a software engineer working on GCC, correct? Give us a little bit of your background, if you would.
3: That's right. So uh, I came to SUSE about a year ago uh, after working on my PhD thesis in theoretical astrophysics and doing GCC work during this thesis, uh, improving code for the applications I used. And so I'm now ending up here as a software developer at SUSE, hacking on GCC too.
2: So you're an astrophysicist who works on GCC?
3: That's correct, yeah.
1: (laughs) Not just an astrophysicist, but a doctorate in astrophysics and he's working on GCC. That's just cool. Toolchain, that's the team that you guys form here. What is Toolchain? What's it mean?
0: Toolchain, I think I would define as a collection of all the programs to actually produce other programs. That would be the compiler and the assembler and the linker, then the whole make process, for instance, some base libraries. So everything which is needed for building other programs. That's, for me, the toolchain.
1: And and maybe what are some of the components that are in the toolchain that people might be familiar with? GCC, I take it, is part of it. What are some of the others?
3: So other stuff would be make... Or the automatic autoconf tools, or like also the assembler and the linker, but those you are usually not facing, but using through the GCC driver. So
0: the assembler and linker are, are part of the binutils, which is might be a term which is familiar to some of the listeners.
1: So what is GCC? Maybe what's it stand for? What's it
0: do? GCC is the abbreviation for GNU Compiler Collection. And uh, what it is is a collection of compilers, so programs which transform source code into executable code. And it consists, the official FSF version of GCC consists of compilers for different languages, amongst them C and C++, the most common ones, and then there are other smaller languages, Java, Fortran, Ada, Objective-C, C++.
1: And you said FSF a moment ago, that's Free Software Foundation, correct? Free Software Foundation, So this is part of the whole new Linux toolkit or new toolkit, GNU.
0: Yeah, GNU, yeah, right.
1: So how do you make changes to this? Are these changes just in SUSE Linux?
3: No, usually we are doing new work upstream first. That is, we are developing new features or bug fixes, producing patches for that and sending them upstream to a central collection point for such patches where they get reviewed and later approved and then finally committed into the upstream repository.
2: And then it it finally makes it into a Linux build down the road then?
3: So it's like a development version of the compiler that gets developed for some time. And then after like a year or so, it's released as a new release. And that new release we eventually pick up in a new product at Novell.
2: Now, you guys have been working on GCC for a while, why aren't you done? What, what additional work needs to be done? Are, are there bugs that you're trying to fix or why are you still working on it?
3: A big part of our products is doing maintenance, that is fixing bugs in already existing compiler versions, like monitoring the upstream bug database, looking for miscompilations, people experience and providing fixes for that and integrate those fixes within our own compiler with the version uh, Novell uses and then the other part is doing new cool development for a future version of GCC.
0: I don't have to add <laughs> very much to that but I just want to say that uh, no compiler compilers of course never bug free because it's one of the most complex programs we have and you'd never get a to point where it's bug free do do you
2: also have to make changes when new platforms come out
0: uh, yeah for sure that's one of the biggest reasons to actually put features into into the compiler to support new hardware not hardware like a usb reader where the kernel is involved but hardware like a new processor in supporting new instructions for instance and so that's one of the biggest features uh, one of the Parts where, where most of the features come, come into the GCC, supporting new hardware. And then, of course, there are other features like Richard mentioned, new optimizations, making code run faster.
1: I have a pair of questions. The first one's a really simple question. Because you said you were doing this upstream, there's a delay before it comes back down to actually benefiting SUSE Linux. And when it does, it's probably already going to be benefiting other distributions as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So why does Novell get involved in this?
0: GCC is basically the only compiler we have in the world. It's the only free compiler capable of what GCC is capable of. And we use it for compiling everything. The whole set of our distributions compiled by GCC. So if we wouldn't have any people knowledgeable in GCC, in hacking GCC, fixing bugs there, and we would hit a bug in our distribution process. We would be screwed, basically.
2: So really, Novell benefits because we have experts in it on staff
1: that can help identify bugs and make modifications as we see fit. Completely. And, and as the whole open source process works, that just means that everybody else gets that as well. So it's, it's really semi-altruistic and semi-self-interested. It's somewhere between
3: the two. Sure, exactly. So one way in selecting on what to work next is having customers paying us to implement specific new features into the compiler and include them into our next product release.
2: Because we employ experts that specialize in GCC, when other companies have modifications they want to GCC and they don't employ experts, they actually pay us money to make those modifications for them?
0: Exactly. We sometimes, so it's not purely for the betterment of Linux for, for which we work, which is the noble goal, but we also simply get money for it sometimes.
1: (laughs) So this is really a way of mitigating priorities. When a company wants to boost up a priority that may be low on your list, you guys can boost it up by them giving you a little bit of incentive toward that. Right, exactly. Okay, okay, that's interesting. But by the
0: way, the the incentive might also be hardware, new interesting (laughs) hardware, which is not yet released, for instance. That's, that's also a way of, of an incentive for, for developers who are interested in it. So it doesn't have to be cash. There are right. other, ty- other types of incentives. <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. So,
1: so what you're saying is if somebody sent you a PlayStation personal. No, yes, yeah, of like yeah, a- yeah, but
0: I want, yeah. That's <laughs> what I wanted, wanted to hint at. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Bribery. We're just kidding about that, everyone. So maybe, Michael, one, one of the other things that would be interesting to people is how big is your team? Tell us, tell us about your team and the people that you work with.
0: The SUSE Labs team, which is working only on GCC, uh, consists of myself, of Richard, then three colleagues in the the Czech Czech Republic, in Prague, and one Italian colleague. Uh, So we are um, six people.
1: So you also then, uh, not just an astrophysicist, you also have a brain surgeon, a rocket scientist, and a few others working on this, correct?
0: We are theoretical mathematician. We have two. Really? Yes, and a consultant. Uh, Actually, the other, I think, is still a student (laughs) of mathematics. (laughs) Okay, Okay, great, great.
1: Well, guys, thanks very much for sharing some of this with us. We really appreciate you taking some time out of the day and letting us know exactly where some of these kind of contributions that Novell makes, where they're happening, at what level, at what part in the whole software stack, as well as whether it benefits just us or not. It answers some questions for me. And I'll take those back to some of those shows when people ask me those questions. Thanks,
0: guys. Sure, no problem.
1: So that's pretty much it for the GCC interview. Cool, guys. Yeah, this is the point where we would normally put in the listener feedback section. Okay, not normally, but the newly added listener feedback section. Except we got a problem, and that's that we haven't received any feedback on the previous episode in the listener feedback section that we put into it. So there's no feedback on the feedback, so we don't know how to adjust it or tune it or even whether it's the right stuff. You follow me?
2: No, not at all. You have an embedded loop there that just totally lost me.
1: All right. Well, whatever the case is, the point here is that Novell Open Audio is brought to you by your friends at Novell Users International, which you can find at nui.net.com, N-U-I-N-E-T.com, in conjunction with Novell Incorporated, for whom Aaron and I both work. You can go to our website, www.novell.com forward slash open audio, and you can leave us feedback on any episode and rate any episode. You can also send us email to openaudio@novell.com, and you can make suggestions for topics you want to hear coming up, or anything like that. We're actually lining up a few things right now. So if you've stayed through this part of the show and you don't know, you don't normally do that, or uh, you're one of our few people that does. Here's a couple things. we got Access Manager coming up. We're going to do a few different episodes, and Aaron and I are currently working on some plans with the team on Access Manager on what we want to cover. Turns out they've got some cool white papers that we want to get some overviews for.
2: We're going to get pretty deep on Access Manager and probably start to dive into some pretty deep technologies.
1: We've got Jason Williams coming into the studio for a couple interviews. He's, As some of you know, he's on Open Enterprise Server, but he also has some of the story of what's been happening with iFolder, and a lot of people have been asking us, why aren't you asking the hard questions on what happened to iFolder?
2: Oh, we'll grill him when he's in here.
1: And then, uh, finally, we've also got coming up some stuff on data center automation. Uh, so we're just starting to lay some of the plans down for that. So these are a few things that we're uh, planning on bringing in. And, of course, we got some listener suggestions that we're going to be looking at as well. So that's what's coming up in the future. If you want to give us any feedback on that, watch the website for the recording dates on that if you want to get your tough questions in. And with that, we'll give you the... That's it for this time, and we'll see you next time. I adore my 64, my Commodore 64. You No, you don't remember that?
2: You know, I remember an awful lot about uh, old computers, but apparently not the television commercials. They
1: had a TV commercial. I can't get a jingle out of my head once I've heard it, man.